welcome to the J&J Connection Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Jordan. Today, we will be talking to our friend Garrett. Hi. About history and how it's made. Fact of the day. In ancient Egypt, servants were smeared with honey to attract flies away from the pharaoh. And the pharaoh was pharaoh... I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. Pepe II? Yeah. Cool stuff. Cool stuff. <laughs> Pepe doesn't sound like... And, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what names I'm supposed to be expecting, but Pepe. Did you... Uh, that doesn't matter. What uh, era of Egyptian history did uh, he come from, this, this Pepe guy? I, I have never heard of him. Uh, he came from that one time, uh, that one time back in the day. Peppy the second. Wow. Tw- oh, tw- <laughs> incredible. 2284 BC, BC to yeah. 2247. Okay. All right. As we did, as I tried to talk and cover my producer's noises. <laughs> oh, that's what you were doing. Yeah. Um... I'm just glad to know that there's other pe- that other people were slathering themselves with honey before me. <laughs> right. Garrett, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. So, so Garrett, we know you. We we went to school with you. You were um two grades underneath of us. Yes, yep. That's yep. Cool. Although if you're an adult, you're 2 years younger than. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You're st- you're still a sophomore. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's right. That's right. So, who is Garrett? <laughs> well, uh that's me. I uh <clears throat> last May I graduated from Washington and Jefferson College. I was a history major and I uh received certification in secondary ed social studies that that's grades seven through 12. Uh, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. I've, uh, had internships and worked in a couple of school districts in Western PA. I was, had spent some time at Cannon Mac middle school, Hmm. Washington high school and Washington junior high school. Southside, most recently, hmm. uh, I was a substitute, and yeah, that, that's a little bit about me. So, why'd you decide to study history? So, I have always been pretty passionate about history ever since uh, I was at a young age. I distinct, I don't have like any of that Marvel character origin story where I woke <laughs> up one day and said I love history and I want to be a dorky history major that that didn't happen but uh, a lot of my family members have were passionate about history so I kind of just it's kind of ingrained in my family my old middle brother is a professor of history at the University University of Pittsburgh uh, Bradford. Mm-hmm. So I took a lot of cues from him. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of an easy choice for me, although I didn't commit to being a history major until, uh, my sophomore year of college. I, I was pretty confident that's what I was going to do going into college my freshman year. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So did you always want to, did you always see yourself teaching or is there, were there other avenues that you were also uh, thinking about using the, the uh, history training? Uh, you know, I, being a teacher, I, I wasn't sold on it 100% going into college, but I kind of had, I had daydreamed about being a teacher and having my own classroom for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So, well, that there's the dream, you know? Mm. You uh, told me earlier before we uh, fully decided to have you on that you had some stories, some funny stories from when you were teaching. Yes, yeah, I have a couple. I have a couple. If you uh, if you would like to share some of those before we dive into the the big history lesson. 
Sure, absolutely. <laughs> and as your direction said, I will put no one, quote, on blast. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, so, let me see. Uh, well, there was this one, and I, I, I won't name any names or the school district, but there was this cool. older guy. <laughs> that uh, I worked with. He was an older teacher, and he has since retired. Uh, but nice enough guy. Uh, the kids liked him, pretty well liked among the faculty. I liked him. And this one morning, uh, I was drinking coffee out of, this cof- uh, out of my coffee mug, and I-, I leave it in the teacher, I had been leaving it in the teacher's lounge. Admittedly, I was being a little bit slobbish, and I wasn't really washing it very well. You know, what, what are you going to do? But that's not important. He says to me, Garrett, uh, you better watch out. And I said, Mr. So-and-so, why? Well, you never know. These kids could poison you. And I laughed because <laughs> I was like, of course, he's just he's pulling my leg. I mean, it's a little strange because while he he's a nice guy, he wasn't a big jokester kind of teacher. Mm-hmm. So I was laughing. I was thinking, oh, ha-ha. He said, no, I'm dead serious. Like, uh, I regularly, anytime I, I leave a mug or anything, even if it's a sealed container, I always dump it out because you never know. And I was like, oh, my gosh, has that happened to you before? And he said, no. But how easy is for a kid to bring rat poison to school pour it in your coffee mug, and uh, there you go. No more <laughs> Garrett. <laughs> no more Garrett. God. <laughs> I, I, to my knowledge, he had no students had significant vendettas against him, so it was a little bit odd, I will say. And I didn't think anything of it. I thought, oh, you know what, that's a little odd, whatever. And then, like, a couple of days later one of the other teachers was like, oh, uh, so did Mr. So-and-so give you the rat poison talk? And I was like, I think. And he's like, I don't know where he gets that from. <laughs> but, uh, you know, whatever. I, I just thought it was a mildly humorous thing. He seemed very in earnest about it, so hopefully... Now that he's retired, he isn't worried about being poisoned anymore. <laughs> Back in my day, Ooh. we had to watch out for kids poisoning. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Kids. Oh, man. Holy cow. I wonder, wonder what brought that to the fore. I, I don't know. I don't know. Because, like, the kids had nothing but nice things to say about him. So, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> He had like one of those Creed moment moments from The Office. <laughs> yes, yes. Starts going off. So when you were subbing for um the different schools, what period periods did you focus on? Well, uh, although my certification is in social studies, uh, high school social studies, mm-hmm. as a sub, you're kind of just uh, eligible to go in for anybody. So. Uh, that w- that was nice that, you know, I got varied experiences, everything from 6th grade to 12th graders. It was definitely interesting. And sometimes, uh, whenever they're short-staffed, you could have 6th graders in the morning and then jump to 12th graders and everything in between. But it's always a, like a social studies or history class, right? No, no, no. Uh, I subbed for <laughs> probably one of the classes I was least qualified to sub for was a 12th grade physics class. Oh, all right. <laughs> what? Okay. I mean, they're, they're kind of close. They, <laughs> I, they figured out, at some point in history, they figured out physics, so. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's really just work backwards from there. Uh, to, to be honest, uh, the way I, I think it mostly works is that uh, the teacher, your, your host teacher, They'll prepare a lesson plan, usually because they know they're going to be out at least a day in advance. Mm -hmm. Or they have, like, a backup plan that they'll leave and send to the office. That's kind of the norm Mm -hmm. for the substitute to follow. And for, for example, that physics class, uh, obviously that's being outside of my breath. No one expected me to 
actually teach them. It was more of a supervisor role that I was keeping them on task. They had, it was like a study hall for them, essentially. So, yes, mm-hmm. admittedly, sometimes it's little more than babysitting. But for the middle school classes, uh, I subbed for Mr. Stein in seventh grade social studies. Hmm. And uh, I taught a lesson about Andrew Jackson. So that he had left for me. So, huh? Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, are you? I I don't I don't know if you said it or not. Uh, but are you a full time uh, teacher now, or are you still subbing? Uh, well, uh, I was subbing full time, uh, mostly full. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean full time. But like, uh, yeah. Do you do you have a uh, teaching position that you're? Uh, um, doing online permanent in no 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 uh, not 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 yet uh right now i am pursuing uh a second certification in english language arts just to kind of bolster my Mm -hmm. uh resume Mm -hmm. make me a bit more uh attractive to some school districts Mm -hmm. uh but yeah yeah so whenever and maybe you haven't gotten to this point but a lot of at least the complaints from high schoolers and middle schoolers is why did we learn about this and not not that or how come i don't know anything about uh the boston tea party or something like that how do you go about managing what content you're bringing to kids or how do you how do you envision that you're going to be doing that whenever you do get a a permanent time and you have to develop your own curriculum well uh unfortunately not unfortunately, how do I put this? Uh, teachers don't design curriculum. Uh, they're kind of mandated by Common Core, uh, and then each state usually has its own riff of Common Core. So r- right now, and, and standards that teachers are expected to meet. So all in all, it's a good thing because the state mandates that students should have an education that covers uh, A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. Uh, the unfortunate, and I'm putting that in quotations, is that uh, oftentimes that's a large amount of content that you can really cover not a lot in great depth. So mm-hmm. it's great in terms of the large amount of content that you need to cover and the diversity of that content, but none of it can really be explored in depth, I guess, is uh, what I'm trying to say. And so I often see on Twitter or some other social media, someone will say something along the lines of, I only heard about this today. Why didn't we learn about this in school? Mm-hmm. And my answer is, it's not in Common Core. I wouldn't so much blame your teachers, but I also wouldn't blame the state or Common Core as a whole. Right. Because every, no matter what you're going to do, you're going to leave some things out, skim over some things, and admittedly, it's always going to be have a little bit of a slant towards United States history. So that's why you're going to learn some, again, I've seen on Twitter and other social medias, people say, I've learned about the Civil War, I don't know how many times, you know, Mm -hmm. can we learn about something else? Or I also see, how come in AP US history, we only got to like, the 60s. So... Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely know what you're talking about with people like saying they didn't know about these or they should have taught them in school. But like, I, I definitely get your point that you just there's no not enough time in the school day to tell you about every single little thing in the detail that everybody wants. And uh, it's sort of like, you know, you can go out there and you have maybe maybe this wasn't true 20 years ago, but you have the Internet now and you can go and find out those things that nobody told you. And so... Mm. But you, you, you learned how to, you developed the base while you are in school, and now you have the opportunity to go elsewhere and inform yourself. So, yeah, I do. I, yeah. I find those, um, those comments a little bit tiring. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of just hope, hope that you get 
a grade that has, like, say, the late antiquity or early medieval period within the in the Common Core guideline, then, for someone in your position, right? If well, I'm understanding uh, all that. The, yeah, well, one of my uh, particular favorite time periods in history is uh, Europe and the Mediterranean in uh, late antiquity and the early medieval period, yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, that's a thing that's essentially a, a, a footnote in in most common core in, in most cl- American classrooms. Uh, if you take AP European history, you might think that has a bit more relevance, but uh, AP European history basically starts in 1450. Hmm. Uh, that's that's yeah, that's part of the AP program there. So uh, you know. I'm not heartbroken about that because at the end of the day, uh, I think students are going to be more invested in history that they can see as having a greater impact on their life. Mm -hmm. And so obviously American history is a big part of that uh, and more recent history. So what we're late antiquity for all intents and purposes is ancient history. Uh, It's... 1500 years ago is really what we're talking about and that can be difficult for a lot of people let alone young adults to see as particularly relevant in their lives right uh yeah. and, and and i think that's that's totally fine because there's a lot of stuff that i think needs covered and if i can just say it i think geography is an underdeveloped skill in a lot of adults uh, that I think we should spend more time on in schools. Mm-hmm. So. so if you had, a, if you have, which I'm probably, I'm sure you've actually had, but a student who just doesn't get it or I don't know, because I'm trying to think back to my, my time when I was learning history and social studies, I just did not care for it. And so I never understood it and never got it. So I I couldn't tell you a lick of almost any history that has happened other than what I've been alive for. (laughs) So so how how would you how do you deal with something like that in the classroom? How do you deal with Jesse? Yeah, how do you deal with someone (laughs) like me? A dreamer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, that's a good question, and that's I think something that a lot of educators have to ask themselves themselves uh, because how do you engage all of your students and the answer is you're not going to be able to every single day throughout the entire school year there's just going to be your students are going to have their off days or they're just not interested in the class so that's where the part of being a teacher you have to kick it into a higher gear where mm-hmm. you have to try and relate to this student and although history might not be their favorite subject and odds are you're never going to make it their favorite subject uh you can try and meet them halfway right so it's by making it uh, applicable to them. So if this is a student that, you know, history isn't their thing, but they love math, bring in the economics side of history. That's a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, How it ties into political science, how it can shape the fortunes of nations. Uh, And that's just one example. If you have a person that is really big into STEM, you know, any of the sciences, engineering. That's a particular thing in the rural school districts I've been in. It's you get a lot of students that say, I'm not going into, I'm not going to pursue a higher education. I'm not going to do, go to college or anything. And that's fine. Uh, But it's still kind of important to have, I'm a big proponent of the liberal arts, uh, so even if you don't want to pursue a career in higher education, this is what I tell uh, 
my students whenever they say this, which they are always outspoken, invariably they'll say, why is this important? Why are we talking about this? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, you know, understanding the human experience because history is beyond just some old white dudes in a dusty old book. It's not all about the generals and heroes and kings. It's about understanding your our human experience in the past, you know. So, I think I, I'm. I just had like a relevation. Relevation, is that the Re- re- revelation? Revelation. revelation. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I ain't. I ain't. Go, I ain't no go with no words either. There you go. <laughs> um, I think the reason why I didn't care that much for history and social studies because I, I excelled more in stuff where you got to be creative mm-hmm. and where you got to make stuff work in your own way. And it's like you said, you have to meet the student halfway. Uh, but the, the issue I had with history, I guess, is y- you can't really change it. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, no. You can't move it, move it around and make it fit the way you want it to fit. Yeah. And I, I totally hear you. And that's kind of, um, I'm glad you actually brought that up because a lot of history is taught in like a lecture format where you, mm-hmm. the teacher or professor or whomever is at their podium and then they just drone on. <laughs> and, you know, if you love history, perfect. And you are going to need, excuse me, you are going to need lecture uh for some learning of history where you have the scholar, the person that is knowledgeable about this spreading, exchanging this knowledge with their pupils. But I, and a lot of other educators, this is the big move in modern education is project based learning. Yeah. So a project I did with kids at Fort Cherry high school this past fall was we worked on a battle plan. We were learning about the Spanish Armada and its attack on England. Mm -hmm. So to kind of conceptualize this, I had my students come up with a battle plan of their own where they individually came up with a country uh, and then came up with a battle plan. I gave them a list of the types of ships they had this is like where you're going to be. This is, and it had like islands or whatever, but the map was theirs to come up with, uh, the battle plan, what they did. And then they wrote like a short paragraph explaining what they were going to do, why. Uh, and then they turned it in. And like a week later, I had them break into groups, share their battle plans together. And then they came up with kind of a group battle plan they came up with a country where they designed their own fake flag and whatever and a lot of that was just to kind of have fun with it and flex your creative juices you know Mm -hmm. because the flag part of it wasn't the important part the important part was kind of thinking conceptually about where are the english at this point in time where are the spanish you know you have to think about this strategically right all the while it was a fun thing to do See, yeah, I, I actually, I had a uh, strikingly similar, uh, I, I took a history of modern Europe class in college uh, my junior year, and it was, um, the, the professor brought in this game called Diplomacy, and it was basically your, you, it was your Europe, and everyone was a country, and just basically, there's a few rules that uh, encourage you to go out and gather resources and the way you gather resources basically was by uh, holding holding area and so it was like trying to find the easiest ways to access era area while not getting attacked and uh, so they basically just set up the game without any uh, context um, leading into it and by the end of it it was I was England and I barely moved from my little island and uh, but I talked to the French and decided that they were going to be my ally. And we were all very wary about what was Germany doing because they were just on our border. And uh, we knew the Austrians and the Germans were working together because 
they were really close to one another and they obviously were allies and it's just like to bring that all organically and just like just ask you to put yourself in that sort of situation and conceptualize the situation rather than just saying it as fact like it's one thing to say um british and the french hated each other for thousands of years and then they were allies and to actually put somebody in that situation be like these are the incentives you would have to be allied with them and this is this is the same exact situation that these leaders would have been dealing with at the time and so it, it made it a lot more accessible and almost natural to think about things that way See, I, I feel like I, I could awesome. get awesome. Yeah, I yeah, could it was get, great. I could get down with something like that. But well, I, yeah. So it it's sort of it is kind of unfortunate that they give you a timeline and say, "All right, now get to the '60s." Uh, but like for people, and it and I was no history buff before I started taking that class. But the fa- the detail that they were allowed to go in and sort of talking about concepts rather than just events. Um, allowing your students to really dig on dig in on something like that it i mean that's i'm interested in history now and i certainly wasn't before uh even going into college and so just giving yourself that uh background and the chance to focus on what you really care about i think is extremely important and to put it into context that somebody care that the individual cares about rather than just telling it to them as a series of events mm-hmm um garrett yes sir i want to give you some time to uh because you said you, you like these two time periods uh give us a brief explanation of the late and and antiquity 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 i forgot how to say the word for a second <laughs> that was <laughs> jeez antiquity um time period and the early medieval time period give us a brief explanation of that and why you believe it's significant okay well so i guess they first off i just like to say these are two time periods but time is very fluid uh if you looked up late antiquity you'd probably get a date range for it like 395 to 800 AD Mm. but really you could say the trends political social economic religious that marked late antiquity started before 395 it's not like people woke up on January 1st (laughs) 395 and said oh it's late antiquity (laughs) now boys (laughs) Uh, It's the same with the early medieval period. And in fact, they're they're fluid dates. They overlap. You could say that the early medieval period starts in 500 AD and goes to 1000. But that's a 500-year period. It's not a rigid thing where someone on January 1st, 500, (laughs) lives an exact same life as someone on January 1st, 1000. Right. Uh, now, w- w- with that being said, you know, me rambling, uh, I guess to start with late antiquity, this is one of my favorites because it feels at this, on one hand, so post-apocalyptic and then on the other hand, pose, uh, uh excuse me, apocalyptic, supposed so and uh, post-apocalyptic and apocalyptic because a ton of stuff is going on right here. So in Europe, I guess I should say, the Roman Empire is really facing a lot of struggles. Uh, you've had pretty regular civil wars devastating the western part of the empire. So this is picturing North Africa, Egypt, Italy, what we now call France, then Gaul, parts of Germany, Belgium, England, you have uh, civil war, social discontent, religious conflicts. Uh, it's pretty insane stuff going on. Also, the economy is really struggling by this point. We oftentimes think that Rome fell simply because barbarians conquered it, but really it was 
a huge number of things going bad for the Romans all at once. One of the big ones being the breakdown of the economy. And that was in part because of the debasement of the currency. So Roman coins, a certain percentage of them would be minted with silver or gold, uh, more often silver. Mm. <clears throat> but if you're a new emperor, uh, oftentimes you became emperor because your soldiers uh, propped you up and said, hey, you know what, General Jordan, it would be great if you were emperor instead of Emperor Jesse. So we're going to depose <laughs> Jesse no, no. and put you on the throne. <laughs> I don't like this and anymore. you say, that's fantastic. <laughs> hey, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> no. But here's the problem, Jordan. You owe your throne, your position as emperor, to your soldiers. So they expect a little something in return. Hmm. Money. Here's the problem. You just fought a war to depose Jesse. So you're bankrupt. Ha! Easy enough. You could just make more money. But hmm. there's only so much silver to go around. Easy. Just don't put so much silver in your money. And so Roman coins become worth less and less and less. And so this is a really interesting part where science and history can come and collaborate really well because scientists can do a mineral analysis of Roman coins to determine how much silver is actually in the coin mm -hmm. to kind of give us a glimpse of how the Roman economy is doing at the time of when this coin was made. Oh, so it's, it's a pretty cool thing there. Yeah. So that's the economic problem. And then I guess the other big problem is, of course, the Germans invading. Were they the barbarians? Yes. So our Greek and Roman friends call the Germans, the Slavs, the Magyars, whoever, barbarians. But that's not really fair. Uh, but we're not going to get into that. Essentially, <laughs> late antiquity, as I said, is feels apocalyptic as we're looking back and reading about it. And a lot of things were going wrong. But no one ever stopped calling themselves Roman. Mm -hmm. And so these civil wars happen. The population falls. The economy is dipping. But these barbarians see how wealthy Rome is, even in this battered state. And they want in on the action. And yes, they usually are pretty militaristic, but Rome uses that to its advantage. It says, hey, you know what, I'm in a tough spot. I can't recruit a big army to defend the borders now, but here are these Franks, this is the Franks being a German tribe. Why don't we give them some land in Belgium and in France? And in return, they are the ones that guard our borders. And we'll give them some treasure and gold every year or so as payment. And it works out. And they do that with a ton of German and Slavic tribes. And they call them Fodorati, or Federates. They're basically just mercenaries that they got paid in land and then gold. So how did it so, how did, so where does this go wrong? Uh, yeah. Well, you run out of money. What do your German muscle men do now? Oh, they attack. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you stop getting these payments in gold and you say, well, this stinks. Hmm. Well, I need to make room for my people. and I want to keep accruing wealth. So I'm going to form my own kingdom here. So that's one thing. The other issue is that at this same time, there's this fellow named Attila the Hun. <laughs> my man. <laughs> Who, it, my man. He's, it's a little bit difficult to determine his exact origins in the origins of the Hunnic people. Uh, but it's pretty, we could pretty safely say that they are a Central Asian people coming from the Eurasian steppes. And they were nomads. 
excellent horse archers and they moved west into Eastern Europe, into Europe itself. Uh, now these Germans, a lot of these German tribes are just totally overwhelmed by the Huns. Some of them join the Hunnic hordes, uh, but most flee. They flee towards what they see to be as the potential for a better life. Get away from the Huns, and that happens to be directly towards the teetering Western Roman Empire. Hmm. So in particular, one group that is probably my favorite simply because of the odyssey they went on were the Vandals. What a name. It's where we get our name for breaking things now. Uh, <laughs> but our Vandals... Uh, they were a Germanic tribe driven by the Huns and other migrating people. And they cross into Francia, France. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me tell you, it isn't looking pretty for them. <laughs> but eventually, these Vandals, they move into sunny Spain and conquer a kingdom for themselves. And that lasts for a number of years until they get their butts kicked out of Spain and they move into North Africa. And it is there that they have a pretty significant kingdom in North Africa until eventually they are conquered by the Eastern Roman Empire in the mid-6th century. Hmm. So, uh, but to kind of give you a quick synopsis, Late antiquity, early medieval period, they kind of flow together. But mm -hmm. the big hallmark of late antiquity is Rome enters this free fall decline in the West. Germanic tribes are driven by a combination of pressure from the Huns and also climate change because things are getting colder. Uh, crop failures are pretty common. So that's really what pushes Rome in the West over the edge. The Roman Empire survives in Greece and what is now Turkey uh, and remains powerful. But what we call the collapse of the Western Roman Empire happened at this point in time, 479, 476 A.D. Huh. With, with Romulus Augustulus being the quote-unquote last Roman emperor uh, if you think Romulus Augustulus is a cool-sounding name, I'd agree with you that it does sound cool, but it's actually kind of a negative name. It means little Augustus, because he was like just a little boy. Like Augustus Gloop? <laughs> yes, yeah, like Augustus Gloop. He was, he was literally a little boy kind of put on the throne by his kind of scummy dad, Orestes. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and Orestes was killed, and... Romulus Augustulus was sent to a monastery to live out his life as a monk, apparently, or he was just killed, it's not really known, by this German guy named Odoacer, or Odoacer. Uh, but, yeah. Anyway, that's kind of that. They blend together. Early medieval period, you know, it, it's kind of a fluid thing because it's marked by these successor states to the Western Roman empires, these Germanic kingdoms. But the thing is, they don't really stay German because at most these hordes of our Vandal friends or the Franks, they make up really only a minority population in their new kingdoms. At most, they're in the tens of thousands, whereas Rome was a country, an empire of millions of people. So you're going to see that although these countries are conquered. Gaul is conquered by the Franks. Everyone in Gaul still calls themselves Romans, and they still practice Roman laws. They still speak Latin. And eventually you're going to see the Franks start to adopt some of the local customs, and that's where you get French. That's where you get all of your, our Romance languages that we have today. They're all descendants of Latin. Hmm. That's interesting that you, that they, I, I um, whenever I study the history, it, it, um, 
the term nationalism really it, it becomes a force in uh, like the late 1800s or, or yeah late 1800s uh, beginning yeah. of the, 19th, or the 20th century and uh, and that's when people because uh, Germany really didn't have its own identity uh, it was it wasn't even a country until a lot later than people think how old is Germany again like I think they unified 200. in the 1870s yeah yeah so it's like younger than America and like so there wasn't like German identity there was just these people who all speak sort of German, sometimes not even German, but they're just these people. It's funny. It's funny to hear that they that some people had a strong sense of like nation identity even before that time, well before that time, and people um, called themselves Romans for that long. And I know a lot of even when in the late eighteen hundreds, a lot of the um, a lot of the honor and stuff that they talked about as far as military or just national pride is um, they took uh, pride in being descendants of Rome and Rome and then there's competitions to be you know who is the true descendant of Rome during uh, mm-hmm. that time and so it's interesting to see how that comes into play what like 1400 years later Yes, to- definitely. Yeah. And I, I guess one thing I, I want to clarify is that it's, while you're right, there is a sense of identity among Romans and that the Romans call themselves Romans long after the Western Roman Empire ceases to exist and they abide by Roman laws. It wasn't an ethnicity. It was definitely mm-hmm. a cosmopolitan empire where the concept of race hadn't even been developed yet. Mm -hmm. It was an idea of citizenship and a sense of belonging, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say. And in part, what caused the decentralization of the Roman Empire was because of this economic downturn where no longer the empire was connected economically. It was a lot of local landowners became the chief source of income and advancement for local people. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yes. That's also also interesting to me. Just, this is sort of a side note that I thought about halfway through, but it was uh, how people sort of compare us to Rome and that, like, our society is just this gluttonous thing and we're on our decline and but to, to think of the actual situation in which rome was in decline like people were literally the the people for who vandals are named are running through rome and just make i'm sure not making things the best it's it's funny i i, I feel like given enough context i realize that we're, we're pretty far away from that yes. i don't have to worry about the decline of the Americans, yeah, for for some time. You you know what I, I have seen that a lot too, where people say we're just like the Roman Empire in decline. I don't I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, that being said, not so much in the decline. I think you could draw a lot of similarities to Roman civilization in the course of the Roman Empire and mm-hmm. the world today. Uh, one thing that I wrote down to talk about was something called a latifundia. And this was essentially a huge agricultural complex where it's one landowner or one landowning family that owns a massive amount of farmland uh, that's managed by slaves or other plebeians, very low-class people. And this was something that really took place in the later years of the Roman Empire because for a long portion of Roman history you had those large-scale landowners but they were offset by free farmers where these were usually former soldiers or you're just average citizens that owned their own small plot of farmland and I guess a connection you could make to that would be well And as time went on, these large-scale landowners bought out these small-scale farmers over the course of Roman history. And that's, in part, where the feudal system 
came to be that we see in the early medieval period, where you have a noble family that essentially owns the peasants that live on their land. Mm -hmm. and, I, and while I'm not saying we're anywhere near something like that, I think you could make a connection that 75 years ago, America had a significant amount of people working in agriculture, owning their own small farm, essentially being subsistence farmers. Mm -hmm. And now you see agriculture has become a big business of its own. Mm -hmm. So a big push whenever I was learning what little history I know um, from college was, uh, so I took a Foundations of History course and it was very much about how history is made and so I've sort of been uh, preoccupied with that to an annoying extent um, and one story that sort of frames this all really well was there was this uh, story and I tried to look it up but Google decided I didn't know what I was talking about so maybe I made this up and this is the first thing like I saw it in a dream or something but so there's this story of uh, of a guy who wanted to make a map of Europe basically and he said I want it to be the most detailed map anyone's ever seen and so he went about he did it and uh, he made he GTA drew, 5 he, he made GTA 5 <laughs> and uh, the story goes that he he made this map and it was so detailed that it had to be the size of Europe to illustrate all of that very very fine detail and so the map of Europe was just as big as Europe was and so, so the point of the story is that you can make something as detailed as you wanted to, but it, like at some point it just becomes too much to handle and it's just too, it's unapproachable in its scope. And so you really have to find what is important and then convey that because the point of a map is that you, you know, you can find where you're going or you can tell where something is and it doesn't help you if the map is, you know, as big as the place you're trying to explore. So that's sort of been my preoccupation. So I guess the question for you is how do you try to make history accessible? I know we sort of covered this, but how do you make it accessible and how do you, without minimizing it, point out the important aspects to people who are inquiring about it? So uh, that's a really good question. I would say, look at the trends what makes a period of a time significant? What were the significant motions, individuals uh, going on at that point in time? And that could be anything from a year, a month, a decade, or a century. Because the further back in time you go, uh, or the, le the fewer written records that there are, the larger and larger those the swaths of time are going to be. I did, during an African history unit, I did with uh, high schoolers I was working with a couple of, two years ago. Uh, I was talking about the kingdom of Aksum, which is in eastern, which was in eastern Africa. And I felt a little frustrated because I had a day to work on this and talk about the Kingdom of Aksum to remain on schedule. Uh, so that's not a lot of time, but on the other hand, there's only so much I could go into significant detail about without squandering, and I'm putting that in quotations, time, because mm -hmm. it'll talk about a few notable kings and queens or a few notable trends and then, boom, that's 300 years of Aksumite history right there. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, it's you focus on the bigger picture because that's what ultimately students are going to want to take away. Because they're not going to, five years from now, they're not going to remember exactly that, oh, Mr. Garrett talked about <laughs> the kingdom of Aksum on such and such a day. They're not. Mm -hmm. But they could remember, oh, we did this project that's highlighted some of the big uh, trends 
that happened in Aksumite history. Oh, I remember that. So, I guess that's kind of pivoting back to what I was saying about how project-based learning, it really, it helps get history alive and connect to students that history isn't their, their thing, isn't their favorite topic. I don't really know how to frame this question uh, because it's just, you hear, you hear it a lot that history is repeating itself. Okay. So, I don't know what if I should say. What's your take on that, or do you do you see it happening? What do you think about it? You know what? Uh, I I mean I hear that all the time, and I, I sort of touched upon this a little bit with that thing where people say, "Oh, America's like the Roman mm. Empire. We're in decline. Look at this and this and this," and none of that really is the case. Um, I like the Mark Twain quote that goes, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah. Now I'm hesitating I like because too. I can't remember if that's Mark Twain or not. That sounds... We can that's so, we'll can. we go stuff. with it. We'll yeah, go yeah. with it for right Close now. Enough. That's Mark Twain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does rhyme. So I, I don't think you're ever going to have things that happen exactly the same. But... There can be similarities. Something that uh, it is Mark I know... Twain. Okay, good. <laughs> Man. Okay, so I do know that on the news, a lot of people point out similarities to the COVID nineteen pandemic to the nineteen eighteen influenza epidemic, mm-hmm. and obviously, totally different diseases, different circumstances. The world was just coming out of the greatest conflict that had the world had ever seen there's tons of turmoil and chaos we're obviously in a different point we didn't just come out of a world war there aren't countries that are collapsing and new new countries forming in their wake Hmm. but there are still similarities like how some people point out that there's a possibility for COVID-19 to have a resurgence in the fall Mm -hmm. as with what happened with the influenza epidemic in the fall of 1918. No one can say for sure. It doesn't, things don't just repeat, but there can be similarities. And that's what I'm saying. That's why I'm saying that the latifundia, the massive agricultural plantations, essentially that we saw in Italy, Sicily, and North Africa, uh, I think one could draw similarities to massive agricultural corporations that have bought out smaller scale farmers in the United States. So, huh. uh, I, it, that's a long winded answer to your question. No, th- <laughs> I actually, I've never heard that, uh, that quote before, but I really like it. Yeah. Because it really fits. Well, Garrett, we're reaching that time. Okay. Thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thank oh, well, thanks for having me, guys. Um, is there anything you want to shout out? Like, do you want to shout out any social media or whatever? Oh, I'll tell you what I'd like to shout out. I'd like to shout out the J&J Connection podcast. We, oh, didn't, even know, good. we didn't even ask him to do that. <laughs> 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 he just did that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This was a lot of fun. Hey, thanks thanks for being on. Okay, so we just had Garrett on, and he talked to us about history, gave us a brief history lesson on why the Roman Empire fell, uh, gave us some decent insight on how teaching and the curriculum works. Buddy, what'd you think? I liked it. I'm a big, uh, I'm more into history now, like I said. And so, and as an adult, I'm more, I'm better equipped to like find the familiar parts of history or supplement what little I know about that period and then sort of apply it to modern day. It was a little granular, um, but all in all, I think it was a pretty positive experience for me. What yeah. Do you think? I liked how, like, I don't, I, like I said earlier in the podcast, I, couldn't tell you a lick of history Mm. 
But I thought it was interesting hearing the uh, economic side, like he said, uh, with every new ruler or emperor, they started putting less and less silver in their currency, making it um, less valuable. And that was part of leading to the fall of the Roman Empire, which I never thought about that. I was all, yeah. I always kind of thought like, how does a whole empire just fall? And I guess that that was one way. And then paying off these barbarians, which otherwise known as anyone who's not Roman. Right. I thought that well, was also remind, interesting. That reminds me of two instances in history that I know about. The one was what kicked off the French Revolution. Was um, it was actually it was the implementation of taxes, but. The tax was, I think it was like salt tax. They started taxing salt. And the effects of the tax compared to other countries were actually pretty minimal. Like it was a rough time and they taxed, uh, they're obviously taxing the poor people. And it was, um, but it was something they used every day. And so even though the tax was low in value, it was like every time you went and bought salt, it's like pay the man. And then it just built up. So even though they had better off than other countries, they were like, nope, this is it. This is the final straw. Like, mm-hmm. And then that's what kicked off the French Revolution. And then the other other part of the uh, instance that reminds me of is the... Uh, I might have told you this just before, but do you know how the Berlin Wall fell? It was a... Uh, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> it, was a, it was a directive given by... It, it was a... It was a um, particularly chaotic time for whatever reason in East Berlin where the Soviets had control and nobody was allowed to leave. And it was just chaotic and it, people's tensions were rising a little bit. And so the Soviet um, government set out a directive for Eastern Germans to read, or for the spokesperson for the Soviets in Eastern Germany to read. And it was like, Something to the effect of, okay, we might start letting people go outside of the wall. And it was just supposed to be like, all right, calm down, everybody. We we're, we're gonna, we hear you. We're going to let you do stuff. And they probably weren't going to actually do any of that. But fine, whatever. But the guy reading it, the spokesperson was like, yeah, so I've got this memo in front of me. It says, I guess people are going to be able to stop start leaving uh, East Berlin, mm-hmm. which is a huge, like, that's a huge deal. And so one of the reporters was like, do you know when that takes effect? And he was like, um, I guess right now. (laughs) And then like everyone just stopped and was like, excuse me. (laughs) Did he? (laughs) And so like you have hundreds of people like, all right, we're going. And just, you know, when people got close to that wall before they'd shoot them, but you know, just enough people came and they were like, yeah, we're, we're not doing this. (laughs) like are we supposed to kill them all (laughs) yeah and that spokesperson was actually he was detained they thought he was a spy for saying that and just it was but like just simple things that like the soviet union was sort of a shell before that but then that was just the straw that broke the camel's back so it's funny you point that out just need a group of people to rise up i think honestly i think my favorite part was the quote we got at the end that I had never heard of before. Mm-hmm. I just that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Mm-hmm. I like that so much because it works so well. Yeah, because you can see a lot of similarities in history, and like obviously it's not the same thing happening over, but it's a, a variation or something. It's some something similar, so it it rhymes. And I've never read anything by Mark Twain before. Maybe I should now. <laughs> you ought to. He's got some insight, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. He's a pretty smart guy. <laughs> yeah. People like him. He might have, some, here. might have something to offer. <laughs> yeah. um, is there anything that you wanted or that you forgot to ask, Garrett, that you wish you could have asked now? Uh... Nothing comes to mind off the top of my head. What are you thinking? Eric the Red. Okay. Um, he's a it's a real person. He is apparently the person who uh, 
started Vikings. Hmm. He, uh, I just found this while I was perusing, trying to get some more insight before we had Garrett on. And, um, he was apparently the guy who founded Greenland and made like the Mm -hmm. first, uh, settlement there. Huh. And his full name was like Eric Thorvaldson, which I think we should point out that, um, what is it? Icelandic last names. I don't know if we've ever said this on the podcast. Certainly not. But a little bit of information, a little bit of trivia knowledge is uh, the last name of someone from Iceland. Like, uh, let's, let's think of, um, half Thor Bjornsson, the mountain. He's from game of Thrones, from game of Thrones. Also about to attempt an all time world record deadlift. But, um, He's Bjorn's son. He's the son of Bjorn. Hence, that's where it gets the last name. And then a lot of um, women, they're like his children. This guy, Eric Threadbeard's children, Freydis, Eric's daughter, hits Eric's daughter. So there's some some trivia knowledge. (laughs) Russian names are like that too. I I can't remember what the the suffixes are that describe it, but like uh, I remember it's like you know Ivanovich that is either son or daughter of Ivan. Hmm. And the Ovich part, I guess, is the suffix. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you, you say the history rhyming thing. It reminds me a like just the context we're in right now remind me of the covid predictions yeah a lot of people are under under guessing over guessing or saying that uh we're gonna have another wave here in the fall because that's what the 1908 or 1918 uh influenza virus did and it's sort it's just because it's been a fight recently is a lot of people complaining about either how how inaccurate the predictions are either they're overestimating underestimating and it just it for me it's like it's hard to do that job as a scientist and mm-hmm. whenever you're <laughs> the most relevant situation you're looking at was a literally a hundred years ago and uh you know uh, yeah but that's just the minor thought we didn't really ask him about learning from history or like learning from history's mistakes. That would have been an interesting question to ask him. Mm-hmm. We should get him back on <laughs> right now. <Yeah. laughs> no, because, because that's where the history of repeating itself. We make the same mistakes. or mm-hmm. Nothing new under the sun. Yeah. And that would have been interesting to get his take on it. But, you know, you, you, leave, you leave more. Leave more to question. Yeah. Always, always one leave them wanting leave them wanting more yeah no i now that you mention it it would have definitely been uh good to ask about uh yeah because the uh we history repeating itself is always like it's a warning it's not just like a fun thing you say right it's like we we've seen this bad thing happen once and we're we're going to see it again if people don't take the proper precautions yeah like why why are we not learning from what has already happened yeah and sort of back to the map story also is it's hard to i you need to be a little more directional than just say what did we learn because you know to use the map analogy again it's you could have a map that shows terrain. You could mm-hmm. have a map that shows borders. You could have a map that shows, you know, uh, there's that map on Reddit that's like every dot represents a thousand wild hogs. And <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> I mean, that's important for somebody. But, um, you know, you, you definitely have to put the learning aspect into a context because, you know, if I want to find the highest peak in Switzerland, it doesn't help me to just have a map of, how many wild hogs are in Europe or something. Right. So it's not all about learning the facts of history. It's learning. It's learning, learning of history. That doesn't, I don't know if that made any sense at all. Did it? I mean, we got a little bit of time. You can, you can rethink it. I mean, it's like, well, no, it's, 
it's the not making the same mistakes mm-hmm. part is what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah, you can learn the facts of history. There's that. Then you can have it and you can be like, all right, so this happened. Or it's like, if I put my finger in an electrical socket, <laughs> like, mm, ow, that hurts. Let's not do that again. I'm learning not to do that again. Let's try to put a fork in an electrical socket, <laughs> which mm-hmm. don't do any of that. But that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, yeah, I, I'm sort of, again, I, I go to really obscure and really particular things, but I think about how it, how maps are drawn and how borders are made. Because, like, there was a, a bunch of different languages in Germany whenever Germany was for, was formed, and mm. not not everybody spoke German. It was Some people spoke French, some people spoke Slavic or whatever. But we've so homogenized that system of thinking, like the nation state way of thinking right and so the people who live in germany are germans and the people who live in france are french and things like that and uh it reminds me of how the maps for the middle east were drawn and they are very much indicative of we just decided to draw some borders around people and so they are those people but the actual like cultural mixing there is extremely diverse and to just look at a map and say these people are Iraqi, these people are Iranian. Like there are Kurdish people, and you can't point out to me where the the Kurdish people are. I don't even know what that country would be called. But the Kurds do not have a country, and so just looking at that map would give you a very bad idea of what that uh, looks like. And I think and, and maps like that, we you know, whenever you think of a map in your head, it's just countries and borders and states. And whenever that's the way you think of the world, it's like it has it has an ability to influence you just in a really in a really subtle way because you're not thinking about uh, the particulars of those those types of uh, representations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's really particular. Well, I think that's I mean, I don't have anything else to add. Yeah, I think hey, we're good that's it for me. Yep. Cool. See you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the J&J Connection podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. They're available wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Instagram at J&J Connection Podcast, Twitter at JJ Connection PO1, Facebook at JJ Connection Podcast, and you can email us at jandjconnection95 at gmail.com. If time travel were real... I would go to the time directly after I knew how this joke ended. <laughs>